Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we are in Hebrews, the end of Hebrews, in a series called Life in the Big City as believers. While we live here on earth, we are actually citizens of heaven, uh, which Hebrews describes as a city. It's more real and it's more lasting, and so hence we call it big. That's what we mean by big. God is the ruler and the king of that city, so he dictates how citizens live. And we're learning how to please him as citizens of that city until we arrive in our true home. We've learned that God is holy. He's a fire, a blazing fire of purity that's fatal to human beings without grace, without what we've been singing about, without Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf. Um, well, we just have absolutely no chance of living in his presence. Now that flame is something that we're drawn to as believers who've come to know that grace. We want it to purify us. We want it to transform us. We want it to affect every area of our lives. Uh, We consider it central heat. In other words, it reaches every single corner of our existence to the smallest closets of our life. In our room, in our house, uh, when we built it almost 17 years ago now, we have a bonus room upstairs. We've finished out a few years later, uh, but we did not put central heat in it, um, something I regret. It has a wall unit for AC, which suffices in the summer. And in the winter, we have a little floor unit that we use, uh, you know, to heat the space. It's not very effective. I mean, it's a really small space. It's about, it's a little over 350 square feet. Um, It's Mikey's space. He's our fourth child. You would never put your first couple of children up there but by the fourth kid you realize their ability to endure extreme conditions (laughs) so when I see him downstairs he's usually bundled up pretty good and I say are you going out he says no I'm just going upstairs (laughs) and I always say okay be safe It's possible that you have spaces in your life where the heat of God's holiness and purity are not reaching, like you have no vent there. And you're sort of making up, making your own heat or your own rules about how to do life in that area. So today, as part two of to last week, We're looking at the bedroom, Uh, a euphemism, as we'll see, for your sexual life. 
It's a very private space in which God's holiness makes very, very serious demands, as we'll see. But you may be closing him off. So we're going to see today exactly what is safe sex to a holy God. So I'll call this safe sex in the big city. How about that? Safe sex in the big city. Which means you're safe from two things, according to Hebrews 13.4. Defilement and judgment. So let's look at the verse. We'll read it. Marriage must be honored among all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled. For God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. I pointed out last week um, that he uses a special construction in this text that he kind of abandons from the first three verses where he uses an imperative verb. I told you that in this text here he usually he just he changes that construction it literally reads like this in uh in greek just honor marriage the bed undefiled that's how the first line reads you have to you have to import the imperative from the imperatival force of these first three verses so you would translate it let marriage be honorable among all and the bed be undefiled. But he keeps the verbs out and sort of condenses this text. And I told you that he does that by limiting the words. Uh, The thought that he's communicating is even tighter and it's more potent and it has more of a binding effect by putting the two nouns in the middle. Greek word order is subject, you can do it any way you want. English, it's always the subject, then the verb, then the direct object. Not in, not in Greek. You can put it in any order you want. And so emphasis, it's easy to see how the author wants to emphasize what he's saying by how he puts it. By putting the two nouns in the center of the verse right next to each other, he connects marriage and the bed or sexuality, sex, uh, about as tight as you can put them linguistically. So that you won't get a more concise uh, sort of explanation about sexual purity than you will right here in this text, literally anywhere in the New Testament, even though um, you see it tightly together everywhere else. Linguistically, it's about as close as you can get them. Uh, so um, marriage then, what he's saying which the Christian community in totality among all is to hold high is the center of the sexual ethic and sexual purity. So sex is safe solely in the context of marriage. And we defined that marriage last week in Genesis as the way Genesis 1 and 2 would describe it because that's the way it's defined all the way through the New Testament. And I just sort of wrote out a sentence that might summarize that really fast so we don't have to belabor it because we've done it. God created marriage to unite male and female who represent his image 
who leave the social unit of father and mother to be bound forever in a covenant that is cemented by the physical sexual union of the two who then are capable of fulfilling God's purpose for them to rule over the earth and multiply and fill it. That's it. It's all those things connected. And I sort of gave you a picture of what we call the building blocks of humanity in a series we did called Design a few years back. We talked about God as creator. We talked about creating in his image a male and a female that both are diverse and the same, just like God is, as three and one, diverse and the same. In order for them to be unified together, uh, there's a covenant formed among them, and then sex is nestled in under marriage, and it's always in this last place. And to mess with any of these, they're so theologically linked To mess with any of them is to destroy the design and the designer. So, sex is always there at the end, the last part of the process, nestled safely in marriage. To relocate it is hazardous to covenant, to society, to humanity. And to God. Now, within marriage, there's the marriage bed. This is uh, the Greek word, literally koite, where we get our word, you just literally transliterate it from Greek to English, coitus, which is sexual intercourse. So he's basically said the marriage bed, sexual intercourse is what he's saying, it's a euphemism. Um, and only there is it undefiled. Now, this is extremely significant, this, this term, undefiled. The writer sort of slips it in. Uh, it's, it's incredibly cultic language. It's, it's almost like casually he throws a term in that's so over the top religious when he's talking about something like sexual intimacy. A setting that you wouldn't at first think is a cultic you know um, place at all. And talking about the master bedroom. And by cultic, I mean religious, highly, highly religious. So for Christians, this would call to mind what all the book of Hebrews is about. It would be the sanctuary. If you read 7 through 10 of Hebrews, you you enter into the holy of holies. You enter into the sanctuary, the temple. Uh, You discuss the priest. You discuss... Sin, you discuss sort of the technicalities of sacrifice and and redemption. Literally, Hebrews chapter 7 uses the very same term 
and it uses it of Jesus. Listen to this regarding our high priest. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest who's holy, who's innocent, who's undefiled. This is a term characterizing Jesus himself as undefiled, sinless, holy. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily like the other high priest to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin. And then for the sins of the people because he did once for all when he offered up himself. There was no sin in him to make sacrifices for. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for sinners. It's it's the holiest language you're going to come up with. In your Bible. Now there's no way to make sex any more lofty or holy or pure or sinless. It's the holy of holies of marriage. It's a two-person sanctuary. Now I know if you're married you're thinking, wow, wow. How come mine feels more like a garage than a holy of holies? Thinking of which, I need to clean mine out. I can't even park in it. (laughs) Married people, you get it. The point is, sex is sacred. Sexual impurity desecrates the sacred. It would be like barging behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, which if you did that in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament, you'd be dead on the spot. So safe sex is sacred. You say, how do you desecrate it? How do you defile that bed? Well, that's what the next part of the text is. And I'm going to end the verse. I'm going to show you the part where how it how it reads actually in your in the text you have the word undefiled the marriage the bed undefiled and then right next to it he puts fornicators and adulterers and this is how it reads in the text so for him he puts the direct objects at the beginning god will judge fornicators and adulterers to connect them as closely to this word as possible to show you how you defile it. It's this kind of sexual impurity that defiles the bed. Uh, So again, these terms are emphatic, closely and tightly associated so there's no misunderstanding of what he's trying to say. Um, now this is interesting what he says and there is an easy way to picture it you have fornication and you have adultery they are personal so they're people he's not just talking about fornication he's talking about fornicators he's not just talking about adultery he's talking about adulterers the marriage bed Either way, you can defile it. Fornication 
is any kind of sexual sin outside of wedlock. Any kind. It's a broad term. It actually is sometimes used, the word porn, where we get our word porn. Uh, and it's broad enough to encompass sexual sin even for married people. But in this particular case, since he adds moikoi, adultery here, adulterers, then you know fornication is what happens before you get married. And then adultery is what would happen after it. So that the bed is dictating sexual ethic, whether you're married or not, that means everyone in this room has some obligation to this text. It's speaking to everyone in here, married or unmarried. The sexual ethic applies to us all. Um, So the holy is profaned on either side of marriage. Before or after. Reducing safe sex to within marriage and approximately the space of a king-size mattress. That's where it fits. Big old powerful urge, desire, itty bitty living space. Doesn't matter if you're a junior high kid with your first girlfriend or boyfriend. Doesn't matter if you're a 30-year-old single. It doesn't matter if you're a 55-year-old divorced person or a 70-year-old widow or widower. That puts you in this category over here. The expectation is the same. Which means it doesn't matter if you're in love. It doesn't matter if you plan to marry. It doesn't matter if you're consensual. And it doesn't matter if you're monogamous. That's the expectation. That's the call. And of course, adultery is any kind of sexual experience encounter outside of this, uh, outside of your spouse. Any kind. Nothing is to defile that bed. Now, um, one of the things that I want to do and that I felt the burden of doing for you that I think we all need is to understand why this little verse, one verse pops up right here in chapter 13 in the context of the book of Hebrews. Because if you don't understand that, then you're just getting another marriage and sex talk, but you're not hearing what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I want us to get that message. Because if we don't, we didn't get the message of Hebrews. Then, if you don't mind, I'll do a part three. Next week, it's gonna ruin the series. It has ruined the series. But I can't get out from under it. It's too much of a cultural issue. And I want to speak to singles in this church. I want to speak to both sides of this group. 
And I want to, what I want to do is try, try to give you a vision for this space right here that would make a person on the, on the front side of it say, I've got to wait. And a person on this side say, no matter what's happening in here, I cannot go outside this room to meet that need. Is it possible that you could get a vision for that here? That's next week. Today, we've got to feel the full force of what Hebrews is trying to say to this text. And it comes in the last line of the verse. God will judge. This is how you would translate it. Not like we've laid it out, like it's actually written. You would translate it for God will judge the sexually immoral or uh, fornicators and adulterers. Um, this is how it's read in Greek. Defiled fornicators and adulterers will judge God. So the subject is put at the end for emphasis. And the direct objects are put at the beginning for emphasis. So safe sex in the big city is not just safe from defilement that we just looked at. It's safe from judgment. So in the Greek sentence, the word God is put last, almost ominously. Reminding you that he's a consuming fire. And it is after only the command to sexual purity of all the rest of the verses in this entire chapter that we're reminded again that God is a judge. That's the only time. It's not the only time God's judgment is associated with sexual purity. You can go to 1 Thessalonians 4 and see it there beautifully where in verse 6... He says, God is the avenger of all of those who trespass, who defraud. We'll look at it a little more next week. One another and cross this line of sexual impurity. And he uses the same word for fornication that's in this text. So judgment is often associated with this particular sin. Now chapter 12, when you see this word, so what does it mean God will judge fornicators and adulterers? I kind of like to get an understanding of that. Well, chapter 12 has already explained the judgment. And it's ultimate judgment. So what I want to do here is I want to put this in the context of Hebrews so you can wrestle with it in the context of Hebrews and put this subject in a place in your faith that's maybe different than you've put it, had it before. And I will tell you, it's overwhelming. It's, it's overwhelming. And... Um, message of Hebrews in regards to your faith is endure to the end. Whatever you do, get to that city. Get to the end. And you need faith to endure all the way. 
I told you faith is hard and your faith is vulnerable. You need community to help you get there. You do not have the resources to get there yourself. Faith is then a journey. This is important. Here's the point. Faith is a journey. It's not static. You and I view our faith as static. We can talk about our faith as something we've had in the past. I can go back to the time I was eight. I can go back to the time I was 30. Hebrews has no interest in when it began. Only that it continues. And you can't be confident that you have it if you don't have it now, even though you may have had it before. It's a hard thing to hear, but Hebrews screams it. So, uh, that's why he says, we're in a race. Some of us view our faith as if the moment we got it, whether we were 8 or 15 or 50 or whatever age, that that's the moment we crossed the finish line. No. You didn't cross the finish line when you started. Cross the finish line when you get to the end. And it will take that same faith that got you started to get you all the way to the end or you'll never make it. That's the point of Hebrews. The Hebrews who he was writing to were contemplating shutting down their faith. And he was trying to tell them, "Uh uh-uh. You don't get to do that without very radical consequences. Um, So, you can't hide behind a past claim of faith in your life. The scriptures teach the just shall live by faith. Not come to faith, live by it. They never come out of it. It's constantly a driving force from the moment they get it to the time that they end. That's why he says at the end of chapter 10, in verse 38, before he launches into the whole chapter 11 of the faith, which gives a whole different meaning to that chapter. We don't shrink back, he says, because the just live by faith. It's how they do life. It's not how they came to faith. It's how they do life in the faith. They're not disconnected. We've disconnected them such that I could have a faith in the past and then do whatever I want to today. It's not biblical. So, um, let me give you a verse. I don't have it up here. I should, but I'm going to read it to you so that you hear right from the beginning of this book what his message is all the way through it. It's one verse. It's Hebrews 3.14. Here's what he writes. For we have become partakers of Christ. How do you know you've become a partaker of Christ? He says. If you hold fast the beginning of our assurance or our faith firm until the end. That's how you know. You never look at your faith and say, well, I know I'm a Christian because of what I did 12 years ago. 
It's always I'm a Christian because I know what I'm doing today. My faith is every bit as alive and real today. And there's no confidence that any Christian can have. If his faith isn't active and real today, on a faith he had 10 years ago. The beginning to the end. So, then he goes into, at the end of chapter 10, when he says, don't shrink back, the just live by faith, he gives you a chapter, a whole chapter to show you what it looks like when just live by faith. They do incredible things. They build arcs when it hasn't rained. They, they leave Egypt in all its riches and, and, and identify with God's people and suffer. They do incredible things with that faith. It's alive in them. Actively deciding how they live. That's the faith he's describing. He illustrates it in there. And then after he's done with the litany of Old Testament and ancient uh, people who lived by faith, he goes into chapter 12 and he gives you one more person, except this person is the complete opposite of all those in chapter 12 or 11. We've seen him in chapter 12. His name is Esau. He's the last Old Testament character to illustrate what happens. You either live by faith like chapter 11 or you forfeit it like Esau did in chapter 12. That's a heavy message. It's as heavy as you can find in your Bible. You're not going to find it heavier. Now, here's the interesting thing about Esau in Hebrews 12 and why why I'm bringing us to him again. Because all of the terms that are in the passage we just looked at are in the description of Esau. Holiness, defiled, immoral, and rejected judgment. You can't read Hebrews 4, in Greek especially, and your mind not immediately go back to chapter 12 and say, I've seen all these terms before. One verse in the context of marriage, and I've seen all these terms before. What was he describing there that he's wanting me to think of here? Here's what it says. We've touched upon them, but now we need to look at them in light of this verse. Pursue peace with everyone. There's our community verse. No one's alone. We're a city. You can't be alone as a city. Pursue holiness. At the end of this chapter, he will call God a consuming fire. Holiness. Without it, no one is going to see God. See to it, community, that no one comes short of the grace He does not want anyone to fall short of the grace. We've got all the way to to the city to make it. Don't tell me where you started. Just don't come short of the end. That no one be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble. Though, or through him, many uh, might become, there's our other word, defiled. Now he's talking about the defiling of the community. So now the sin and the defilement in a person's life 
is sort of contagious and affects the rest of the community. So see to it that nobody becomes like that. That means we got to, like I said, be investing in each other's lives in a way where we help each other make it to the end. You can't do it alone. You got to do it together because something will spring up and make your faith vulnerable. See to it, there it is again, that no one becomes, here's the word, immoral. Now look, you see in all our words that are in this text, in verse four. Or godless, he adds, like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a meal. He was the firstborn son. To him was the birthright to inherit the fathers and all that he had. But he gave it up for one single meal. He sold his birthright to his younger brother. All all that was going to be his for one measly, and that's literally what he means by single, measly meal. And in him was a desire for something, something selfish. That made him forfeit is it faith. The birthright feel is, is his faith. He gave his faith up for a meal. That's what he's saying. How does that apply to us? I need to tease just this out. Then I'm going to drive it home. And then we'll be back next week. So... Uh, what he did was he traded his faith for a meal. Uh, that's the important piece. All these terms are listed here that are in our text. The godless person is basically, let's describe Esau. Let's, let's get, let's, let's become very, very in tune to him. He's irreligious. That's what godless means. This is a man who at once had the inheritance in his hand. In other words, he had a faith at some point. But for a meal, he gave it up. Uh, he turned his back on holiness. Pursue holiness at the beginning of the text. For a meal. One commentator said, for such a person, there is only the self and the present moment. And I want you to see the connection to Esau. Uh, to him. Look at verse 17. For you know later, later on, he wanted the blessing back, but he forfeited it. He couldn't have it back. But look, here's the judgment. There's our judgment term, rejected. He found no opportunity for repentance, even though he wanted that blessing and he sought it with tears. What he was tearful about was what he lost. He was not tearful about his sin. He could never bring himself to repentance. And so what you see is a man who at one point had a faith and now he doesn't and he's completely, totally rejected by God. I want you to see the connection between the... Here's what commentators are sort of baffled by. Why do they use the term immoral of him? He didn't do anything sexually. This is our porn word. 
Same word in 13.4. Why would they use that term of him? Because it's descriptive of a desire, a longing for something that he put above God. And always in Old Testament characters, you see, whenever they are unfaithful to God, it's always described in sort of sexual terms. A desire. And so you see the connection between immorality and unbelief. Make sure you make that connection. Apostasy and unbelief with rebellion and immorality. That's Esau. So what it demonstrates is a person who has this little faith over here on the side, but there's a room in their house where the holiness of God isn't getting to, and they're selfish, and they think they can have their faith and be selfish too. And so he is saying this defiles the community. It's contagious. It reflects a disregard for the sacredness, not only of community, but of its holy character. So sexual immorality is sort of an unfaithfulness to God. It's a violation of my relationship to him, but it also has nowhere is this characteristic of a person who's grateful for the, for the fact that God has cleansed him of sin. And so he is essentially trading his faith for his own personal desires. So Esau is rejected, and this is ultimate rejection. This is, Esau, you're not getting in. So he desired faith, but he just wouldn't repent. He was defiant. He was selfish. You say, what does that look like today? How do we look like Esau? Well, we don't have a birthright that we're trading in, but we have a faith that we got sometime in the past. And we sort of put it aside so that we can do whatever we want and somehow we believe we can have them both and Esau's proving you can't. You just can't. Now, I know it is very, very difficult. I have wrestled with it myself to try to understand what I mean by fire and God's blazing holiness. It is more than you imagine. Uh, A.W. Tozer writes this. God is holy and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. Hear this. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is like a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. 
When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from the imparable or irreparable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment is a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys what he has made. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the disease that takes her child's life. We seem to be, not only as a culture, not here to bash them, we have enough sin in here. We have no need to point any fingers. This is a far cry from the way the world views sin. And unfortunately, we seem to be so far from the fire of God's character that even we don't understand it anymore. So if you want faith, but you want to create your own ethic too, Hebrews will tell you you're out. Can't put it any simpler than that. Read a great article yesterday, and I'm, uh, the writer was sort of describing the the atmosphere, maybe, if you will, of, of the Christian culture, which is essentially um, you elevate your own thoughts and thinking above the authority of Scripture. And then he gave a challenge, which I thought was very interesting. I'll throw it out to you. Is there anything in this, is there anything you believe in the Bible that you don't want to believe? If you're comfortable, he says, with all your beliefs, you're probably interpreting the Bible to suit your needs and feelings. In other words, there's many truths in this book I don't want to believe. But I'm under its authority, and I do what it says. If that's not your heart, then you should question whether or not you're headed for the same city Hebrews is describing. It's not always easy. Definitely isn't always pragmatic or practical to do what God says. And sometimes, quite honestly, I don't want to do it. Everybody agree with that? There ought to be a whole host of things in that Bible you feel that way about. But you say, it's not for me to decide. Now, 
been a heavy day. You might say right here and now. I've messed this up. Maybe on both sides. What do I do? I've been determining my own ethic spiritually. God's heat has not made it into that room. Well, I'll tell you what you do, and this is the, the wonderful side of Christianity. I'll tell you what, I'll do, what I would do if I were you. You would say, right now, I realize fully I can't point the finger at anyone else. It's my own life I need to deal with. And right now, I would say, I'm not holy in this area of my life. So I would say this. I'm confessing that right now and I'm surrendering that part of my life. The room that has not been getting the heat is getting it starting today. And when I leave this building, I will take whatever steps necessary to put an end to the sexual sin that's going on around me or in my life. no matter how inconvenient it is for me to do it. A few years ago, we were doing this series on design and we talked about sexual purity in all categories. There was a couple that is living here. Both of them were divorced. They knew each other from work and started to date. And they had begun to date, figured out at one point they'd probably get married And while they were in the series here. Were actually, so they lived in two separate houses. They're middle-aged, but they were sleeping over each other's house. After one of the talks on the topic, they went home that day. Well, actually, they weren't here. That's what happened. They weren't here. So she, so they had spent the night together. Monday morning, he went to work. They were at his house. She was laying in bed, and she turned on the talk that she missed Sunday morning. So she's laying in that bed, the bed. And she's listening to this talk, and she said that when she finished She said she felt a weight in the center so heavy that she said all I could do was fall out of the bed to my face before God. Tell him how sorry I was. I grabbed my stuff and I left that house and I called this man and I said, you've got to listen to that talk and then we'll talk. And from that moment, that day, they called me 
I said, let me tell you what we've been doing. And, and we're overwhelmed by the fact that we have allowed ourselves to live like that. So we're calling you because we want to be accountable to you. We will no longer sleep at each other's homes until the day we get married. It was months later. They stayed away from each other and stayed pure until that day where I married him right here in this fireside. If that's not your response to the sexual sin in your life today, then I have no comforting words for you. Nor should you be confident in the faith you claim to have. But if you want it, I don't care how bad you've been, Jesus Christ will right now grant you forgiveness and healing, and you can start over today. Today, you can start over. You should bow your heads. Father, I completely underestimate your holiness, your love for your creation, how sacred we are as humans, how sexuality without this, this marital parameter is devastating. I do, Lord, I confess that. I confess that just reading this verse seems like it's like a bar too high. Impractical. And absurd. But when I think about what you have done for me. That you gave your life an eternal being for whom death had no part until you gave your life for me and my sin. I think that overwhelms me more. My prayer is that that, what you did for us, would overwhelm us even more than that blazing holiness. And we would decide today, no matter what, that sexual sin is stopping today. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.